Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us so well this morning to praise our Lord. Well, we're continuing our study in Luke uh, chapter 9 today, but uh, I want to begin with a, a question. I have a question for you. It's an important question. Does God call us to ministry that requires more resources than we have? It's an interesting question. It's a very important question. I mean, think about, you know, it might be maybe, you know, this time of year you're thinking about your personal budget. Maybe, maybe you're part of a nonprofit. Yeah, you're part of this church. You think about your personal budgets. And the, there's so much going on in our world all the time, it seems. You know, there's needs pressing in on us. We have family needs, uh, needs that we want to give to. Uh, inflation, you know, it just goes on and on these days, it seems. But do, does God call us to a ministry that requires more ministries, more resources than we have? It's an important question because how we answer it largely determines our approach, our philosophy, our vision to gospel ministry, uh, both as a church and individually as Christians. And some would just say that, well, you know, the obvious answer is no, because he wants us to be good stewards with the resources that he's given to us, and he's given us so much. He's already given us so much you know, spiritually and materially, and we're just simply responsible to use it very wisely uh, for what God has put before us. Others might say that the answer is an obvious, yes, He does call us to ministry beyond our resources and because He wants to test our faith. And uh, He gives us opportunities to minister in ways that are beyond our means, and He wants us to learn to trust Him as the all-resourceful one. So which is it? Well, perhaps it's a little bit of both perspectives. Maybe it depends on how we define resources and how we understand what our calling is. And maybe it varies from situation to situation, and it just calls for a lot of spiritual wisdom um, in each case. Well, let's pray, and we'll explore this question in our passage this morning. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for your rich blessings, that you bless us out of your abundant glory in Christ. And all that we have comes from you. And we want to give it all and use it all for your purposes in this world and in our lives and to those around us in ministry. We thank you so much for what you've given to us. And we pray this morning that you would guide us um, through your spirit, uh, through your word that you have written. And may you make us even more faithful disciples and followers of Jesus. Amen. Well, you know, the 12 disciples would learn some valuable lessons about this question, actually, on their very first mission tour, and that's what we're looking at this morning. They would experience both ministry success and ministry failure on this one trip. They would decide, they would figure out exactly what they could do and what they couldn't do, and that really all ministry is all about the powerful work of God through them. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, and it's also printed for you in your worship folder if you simply want to follow along there. I'm going to read the whole story to you to begin this morning. So Luke chapter 9, and he called the twelve, Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because 
It was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On the return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Well, this first apostolic mission was actually a training tour. It was a training tour for the Great Commission that would be coming much later. And we're going to learn along with the disciples this morning that the Lord Jesus gives his authority and his power to his church to accomplish his mission. But even more than that, he himself works through his church to accomplish his mission. So there are two stories on this mission tour. We have the, the, and, the, and these, both of these stories are going to teach us two lessons. The first, in verses 1 to 9, is that the church is always dependent upon the Lord for resources. He's the one who supplies. And secondly, in verses 10 to 17, that the church is always dependent upon the Lord for ministry. He is actually the one that makes ministry effective. So, in trying to integrate together the different gospel accounts here, it seems that Luke is following very closely uh, Mark's uh, storyline, but shortening it significantly. If you look in the Gospel of Matthew, he has uh, Jesus' sermon that we might entitle Mission and Martyrdom, and someday when we study Matthew, we'll look at that. But the relationship to this current situation is not exactly clear. It's a much broader, detailed, comprehensive, future-oriented message that Jesus is giving there. But Luke is just simply focusing on us, us on this very limited mission uh, for right now. I mean, as we've been reading through Luke, we've seen Jesus do some amazing things in chapters 4 through 8. And you see, now we're getting a sneak peek, if you will, at what he would make of his disciples at some point. The last two Sundays, we've seen Jesus and how he has absolute power over nature, over demons, over diseases, over death. Well, today we're going to see him authoritatively distributing some of this power to his apostles. And the Lord Jesus does give him his authority and his power. He gives it to his church to accomplish his mission, but it's still he himself who actually accomplishes the work. It's his glory. His mission is for his glory from first to last, all through his chosen means, his church. So let's take a look at this first lesson from the training tour that the church is always dependent upon the Lord for resources. So the outline is, is pretty simple for you, as you can see it as we read. In verses 1 to 2, we see the commission given uh, to the authority and the power given to these men to go out. And then there's instructions on uh, what they're supposed to be doing. And then there's a simple report in verse 6. 
And then we have this intriguing interest, fearful interest really, of the so-called king named Herod. And so we read in verses 1 and 2, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So Jesus calls these 12, invests them with his power and authority, and what they have seen Jesus do um, and receive from him, they're going to be doing that. They're going to power over diseases, over demons, a testimony to the presence of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. And they'll have both the authority, authority refers to the right, and and, uh, they'll have the power, that is the ability, to heal and to cast out demons. Now the substance of their commission, though, is really in verse 2. So that's to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's what they were sent out to do. That's what's promised now. The promise has been fulfilled is what they're preaching. And so they're going to be preaching and teaching, you know, the exact same things that Jesus has been preaching and teaching. And nothing new. And they would likely tell stories about Jesus and call people to repentance and faith in him. You know, it's a lot like what we do, actually. We tell stories about Jesus. We tell people about what's in the Word of God, but we even do it with an even greater clarity than they would have at this point because we speak very clearly about the cross of Jesus Christ and how He would die for our sins, and very clearly about His resurrection and how it proves that His cross would bring us justification and that we have a promise of eternal life. I also want you to notice something else in, in Luke's Gospel and that is, you probably already noticed it, but there's this progression. There are a lot of progressions in Luke, but we see a progression from where Jesus is out, and he's the one out preaching, and then he preaches with his disciples, and here we see him sending them out on their own. So, for example, in Luke 4.43, Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Then in Luke chapter 8, verse 1, it's with his disciples. And it came about soon afterwards that he began going about from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And now he's sending out the twelve that he had chosen, who had been traveling along with him. And as Mark tells us, he sends them out in pairs to do the ministry. It's a trial tour, if you will, of sorts to prepare them for something more that's going to be coming later. And then as we go through Luke in chapter 10, he sends out the 70 and on a much larger mission, and then eventually comes the Great Commission at the very end, where Jesus now is physically in glory, but he oversees the mission. Well, then we get these instructions in verses 3 to 5, and... uh, He says, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, don't have two tunics, whatever house you enter, stay there. From there, depart, and wherever they don't receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, we don't know how long this uh, mission tour was, perhaps a few weeks. Uh, Most likely included a lot of the villages in the Galilean region that Jesus hadn't been to yet, and so he was sending them there. Now, it wasn't always the case, but... This time, on the very first mission, they're told not to bring any provisions, uh, but to wholly rely upon God for providing everything that they needed. It's sort of an an odd way uh, to say things, but there's a a lesson here. God would provide people to meet their needs along the way. And in Luke chapter 10, we learn about these types of people. They're called people of peace. 
And they would often be entry points uh, to the villages where people would be eager to hear the word and to share it with their friends. But later on in the Gospel of Luke, we learn they'll get some lifetime instructions for how they're supposed to do ministry. So if you just flip ahead to Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 35, you'll see that the instructions then change. And so reflecting on this mission, actually, it begins in verse 35. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And so the missions then change. But here they're not supposed to be bringing provisions, bag, money, food, not even an extra shirt. It's assumed, of course, that they're going to have on them at the moment some sandals and a staff, but don't go get an extra one. There's no serious problem integrating this with Mark's mention of a staff and sandals or Matthew recording not to bring them. Each is plain in its context. The point is don't go home and pack for this trip. Travel light. Just bring what you have. Say goodbye to your wife and your kids for a few weeks and go out on this mission. So they would learn to be free from encumbrance and totally committed to the mission without worry. That's a really important lesson to learn early. To learn early in our Christian lives as well, too, is to be committed to the mission to the point that we don't worry about God providing for our needs. And perhaps there's even more here. As noted in Matthew's account, Jesus also wanted his apostles to learn by the way he has them do things that the minister, the worker, is worthy of his keep. So they'd find a house that would receive them, a person of peace, one who's worthy, stay in that village for a while. You see, itinerant philosophers would, would, would always try to upgrade. And so they'd be going from house to house to house, collecting more money along the way, preaching their you know, greatest philosophy that they just discovered. Um, and, but his disciples are to be content with their lodging, where they go, in the first place, uh, where there's a person at peace, and focus your time on proclaiming Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom. And these open homes would be places that are receptive to the message, and they're possibly very open because they've heard stories about this Jesus, and here are his disciples. They've come to tell us more. You see, we learn even right here that Christians don't shamefully beg people to listen to them. We don't do that, or to shamefully beg people to support. We're not peddling some philosophy, but we're proclaiming the truth from God. And so if they're rejected in a particular village, they're to shake the dust off their feet, meaning simply move on. It's a sign of judgment upon the unworthiness of the village, because if they don't receive his messengers, well, that's just like not receiving Jesus. Well, then we get the successful ministry outcome report. It's very understated in verse 6. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Very simple, powerfully understated, telling us how successful the Twelve's mission was. They went out in pairs, they covered numerous villages with the gospel, they faithfully followed the instructions of Jesus and preached the gospel and healed people. They did what he said, and that he did the kinds of things that he did. And Jesus' promise of their needs being met by the people where they stayed, who were receptive, were fulfilled. They learned a lot on that mission. And they were gaining training, they were gaining confidence for what would be coming in the future. And I 
we probably know too, we are fortunate to live in an age where short-term trips are often very possible for us as well in different ways. But they have a unique intensity to them, don't they? Especially if you've been on one. And, and they do these kinds of things to us because God works through them and he uses them to prepare us for something more. And we have no idea what that more is usually when we go on these trips. What is that more? But, uh, but they have a way. Maybe God's calling us to future ministry that we'd never thought of before. Or maybe it's just a new way of serving his gospel where we live currently. But you know, doing is often the best way to learn. And so that's why we go on these places. It gets very real. You get to experience God's provision. Well, then we have a very interesting thing that happens because Herod gets interested in what's going on with all these people traveling around. In verses 7 to 9, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Well, Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him, wanting to see Jesus. So you see, these uh, 12 disciples were so successful in their little short-term campaign that Herod noticed. What Herod really noticed was that this Jesus guy is now multiplying his influence by 12. That's a lot of multiplication. And Jesus is working on getting his gospel out there, and it's making an impact on people and society and leaders whose political authority may be subject to being challenged, it would seem. So this Herod is Herod Antipas. He's one of the sons of Herod the Great. Tetrarch means he's one of four rulers. And he was king, uh, if you will, over Galilee in the north and Perea in the southeast. Now for about 30 years, he's been king. And Herod Antipas lived in Tiberias on the southwest side of the Sea of Galilee. So it's in his district that they're doing this. And he learns about Jesus' popularity, of course, throughout Galilee. And now this powerful ministry that's happening not just through Jesus, but by these disciples of his that he sends out. They're scattering out, and they're going to all my villages, and they're teaching people about the kingdom of God. So some people were talking about the idea that Jesus might be Elijah or one of the other prophets. It would be a sign to them, it would seem, as it's recorded in the prophet Malachi, that the kingdom is being inaugurated. I mean, many ideas were actually floating around at the time, some stranger than others, but but many ideas about Elijah returning, or maybe Moses returning, or Jeremiah, or Isaiah, or one of the other prophets. I mean, you remember the results from when Jesus raised the only son of the widow at Nain, back in Luke chapter 7? Remember what the people said? They said the fear gripped them all in Luke 7, 16, and they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report concerning him went all throughout Judea and in the surrounding district. So, but the rumor that really has Herod worried is that John the baptizer has been raised from the dead. And that's really serious because Herod's the one who killed him, right? He had his head chopped off. So Luke chapter 3 we read, but when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him, John, on account of Herodias, his brother's wife, um, he's a very immoral man, and on account of all the wicked things which Herod had done, um, he added this also to them all, that he had John locked up in prison. And of course, you can read about all the details of the execution that are in Mark 6 and in Matthew 14. So John had been ministering powerfully within Herod's jurisdiction as well. But John didn't do miracles. 
And now there are powerful miracles going on, so what's happening? Perhaps Herod doesn't really believe the rumor of the resurrection of John, but he wants to put this dangerous rumor to rest. Or perhaps he really is afraid, thinking that Jesus really is John the Baptist and he's in a lot of trouble. But regardless, he wants to see this Jesus for himself and figure this out. So he kept trying to see Jesus. And so this is where a great story just keeps getting greater and greater and greater and better as, as the storyline goes on. And we'll, we'll read more of it in Luke, because while he's trying to see Jesus, God's not going to let him. God would leave Herod alone and torment him by his own conscience. Herod failed to recognize God's truth when John led a revival right under his nose in his jurisdiction. Herod failed to recognize God's truth when he had John in custody and would hear him preach. And he failed to recognize it when Jesus Christ preached and taught and healed right under his nose as well. Herod would see Jesus, though, but that would be during his unjust trial. And Herod would also participate in crucifying the Lord of glory. But the focus on this little subsection is verse 9. It's a question. John I beheaded, but who is this? About here, who I hear such things? That's because Luke wants us to answer the question. He wants everyone who reads his gospel to answer the question. So who is this man Jesus? Do you know who he is? So we learn right away in this very beginning of this storyline that the church is always dependent upon God for resources. That's the larger point. I mean, there's, this is really important because there's continuity. We're actually picking up in the storyline of the mission. And so the lessons that the apostles learned should be lessons that we should take to heart as well. There's continuity in the commission. The 12 are sent out. Then the 70 are sent out. Then the Great Commission is given. Then the church in Acts continues to expand around the world. And there's the whole history of the church and mission. And it's Jesus. He is the Lord of his mission. And he's directing it. And he sent his church out to continue it. And so mission success comes through dependence upon and faith in and obedience to Jesus. God is always going to meet our needs in the doing of the mission. If we're not actually doing the mission, there are no, no needs to be met because we're sitting around. But he always meets our needs in the doing of the mission for what we need for the mission, what we need for life. It's his promise. You know, and we really waste our life and miss, miss the mission if we're just so preoccupied with meeting our own needs, thinking that we have to meet them. But there's so much freedom when we just give and we go and we support and we do. He's going to supply. Philippians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 9, these other passages you can look up. He's always going to supply. Philippians 4, 2 Corinthians 9, and he's going to outgive us every time. But also there's something else here too we should learn, and that is that we have his authority and power. Not like the apostles, but as the church of the apostles of Jesus Christ. You see, and how people respond to us as messengers of the gospel, that's really their response to the gospel. Not that you're so great or I'm so great, but it's because the gospel's great. And whoever brings it, they better listen, because that's a word from the Lord. You see, we shouldn't fret over the fact when people are going to accept what we say, People are going to reject what we say. 
People are going to sit on the fence for a whole long time. But you know what? Those are the results of successful mission work, the varied results. The Lord Jesus has given his authority and his power for his mission to his church. Let's trust him to resource it and to just go forward in the calling that he's given to us. That's the first lesson. The second lesson from this training tour is that the church is always dependent upon the Lord for ministry. This one's a little harder to absorb, I think, for us, and we'll see why as we go along, but who makes ministry effective? Who actually does the work? So, the feeding of the 5,000 is what we're looking at next, the story. Did you notice the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels? Outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of course. And it appears to have so many links to other pieces in the history of redemption. Links to the story of the manna in the wilderness. Links to the Elijah and Elisha series. And it would proclaim that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Elijah and Elisha. It has links to the Last Supper. It has links to the Messianic banquet that we read this morning in Isaiah 25. And it would promise that Jesus is the Savior from sin and He's the provider of all heavenly joys. You know, much of this comparison, I mean, there's like a year's worth of study right there for you that you could explore, all those parallels, that comparison. But the immediate focus that we want to look on today is this episode's relationship to the apostles on Jesus' mission. So, in verse 10, they come back from their mission, their little tour, and Jesus takes them on a, on a retreat or a debrief in verse 10. And we find out that ministry is never done, the crowds follow them, and there's a new ministry challenge that appears starting in verse 11. And then there's the great miracle where Jesus provides for them all. And so the storyline begins in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they have done. The 12 are referred to by their official title here. Did you notice that? The apostles. That means the sent ones of Jesus Christ. They've returned from a very successful mission tour. It's their very first one. And they're both exhilarated, as you can imagine, and exhausted. And so Jesus takes them on a debriefing retreat to Bethsaida on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. In Mark chapter 6, in his recounting of the story, he says this, Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. Too successful. It would be wonderful to hear this debrief, wouldn't it? Hear the stories from all the different pairs and all the different villages they went to and the people they stayed with and who they healed and who they preached to and how people responded to the gospel. Maybe someday in the kingdom we'll get to sit around and hear those stories. Well, the crowds find out about this, that they're escaping. And so in verse 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. So people find out that Jesus is escaping with these 12 guys. And so they run along the shore. And eventually they'll catch up to them on the other side in this remote area. And Jesus would welcome them. And as it's recorded in Matthew and Mark, as the compassionate good shepherd. 
He would teach them about the kingdom and heal them of their diseases, yet there would just be more ministry and more ministry. I mean, ministry is never done. But it gets late in the day, and the disciples get worried about the many, many people and the enormous needs. They've come a distance and are going to need lodging. Uh, they're going to need an evening meal soon. It's time for Jesus to end the day. End the day of ministry, send people home so they can make the arrangements that they need. But Jesus tells the 12 to give them something to eat, to meet their needs. And the best they can come up with are five loaves and two fish by a little boy standing there. Only John mentions the boy in his gospel account. He's not really much of a character in the storyline, but, you know, we like to make much more of him than we should. And so oftentimes in our retelling of the story, he becomes like the second hero um, in the story. But, you know, as human beings, we, uh, and as, I'll just, you know, we seem to have a penchant, you know, for finding the unimportant things in stories and making them the most important thing. But the most important thing is what Jesus does, and we don't want to lose focus on him. Now, this is nothing for a crowd so loud, large. I mean, there's 5,000 men, which could equate to 15 to 20,000 people. It's an enormous crowd of people. And they certainly don't have enough money to buy food for all these people. And this, too, is brought up. There's a, there's a full conversation, if you want to read it. It's recorded in Mark and in John. But then in John's Gospel, we learn that this has all been planned by Jesus all along. And so... Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude that was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? And as he was saying this, it says, to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. Ah, still a training tour. And we sort of wonder at this point when he brings that up, I mean, have they really understood how to count their resources for ministering in Jesus' name? I mean, they just finished the training tour, they had a wonderful experience, God met their needs, but have they really learned how to count? Have we? I mean, it's obvious they can't meet the need, but Jesus could, and they needed to learn that. And so do we, as disciples of Jesus. We have to have faith in Jesus to provide what's necessary to minister in his name. Now, this is going to be an awesome story here. So we're ready to see a miracle way beyond Elisha's multiplication of bread, which is one of the things this is modeled after. So briefly, you don't have to look it up, I'll just read it to you. But in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44, we read this. So a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread from the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. That was only a hundred men. They've got 5,000 men, maybe 20,000 people. So it's a miracle way beyond that of the prophet Elisha. And this is more on par with the kind of provision that God did in the wilderness when he provided manna for his people. And you can read about all of that in Exodus chapter 16. It's even anticipatory of something that is yet to come, and that's the messianic banquet, the great banquet at the end of the age, which we read about in Isaiah 25 this morning. It's an amazing thing that God provides. And so then we come to the miracle in verses 14 through 17. And we read... And he said to his disciples, 
have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had the, he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. So Jesus gives these simple instructions, have them sit in groups of 50s. Perhaps this is going to make distribution a little easier. There's still at least 100 groups at the lowest count to distribute the meal to. And some suggest that this even symbolizes the future of the multitudes of churches that would be planted. It's true in the book of Acts anyway. Well, Jesus blesses the five loaves and the two fish. He consecrates them, gives thanks to God the Father, divides the loaves and the fish, and he just kept giving out this to the twelve to distribute to the multitudes. And how this miracle happened, we don't really know. Whether the food was multiplied in the hands of Jesus as disciples came back to him to get more, or whether it was just multiplied in the baskets in the hands of the apostles, we don't really know. And speculation is not going to lead you anywhere. Important. But the focus for us, of course, is that God's limitless provision for us in Christ and in Christ for ministry, his limitless provision. All the people, did you notice that? Every single one, did you notice the word that's used? Satisfied. They're satisfied in Jesus Christ's provision for them. Jesus Christ is for all the world. He satisfies all his disciples. And we as his disciples are to find our full satisfaction in him. He is our all. Have you found that to be true? Have we as a church found that to be true? That all your satisfaction is met in Jesus. And then there are 12 baskets of bread and fish left over, on purpose again, of course. This surely signals abundant supply, but also likely much more than this. The meaning is not that easy to figure out, though. Most some make some kind of a connection. Most scholars make some kind of a connection to the 12 apostles. Makes sense. But we don't really know exactly what that means. But perhaps it means this, that they now, as the new leaders of the people of God, have yet more from Jesus to give out to the world. In other words, it symbolizes that they are now supposed to take what's left over, in a sense, from the storyline, and go feed the world the gospel. And it's going to keep being multiplied. And God's going to keep raising up more and more people to do it. It's a very good theological picture of their task and of our task in following them. The church is always dependent upon the Lord for ministry. And we need to remember that the authority and the power that's given as a derived authority and a power, it's not inherent to us. It's not wholly permanently transferred to us. That's an overreading of it. It would be too much for us. Jesus is Lord of his church. We are not Lord of the church. And he's acted in his church by his spirit. So he didn't just like hand it over and disappear. You see, this is really important because Calvary Church is not our church. Calvary Church is not my church as the pastor, right? And you know what? Calvary Church is not your church. It's not your church. It's Jesus' church. And we all need reminding of that because it's so easy to think that we built it. 
that we're the ones that make it effective, that we are so wise, so important, so resourceful. So to whom does Calvary Church belong? Jesus would later teach his disciples right before departing this world. He said in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't really meet people's needs. We can't meet people's physical needs. We can't meet their spiritual needs. Only Jesus can really meet people's needs. And this episode is a very good reminder for us, for those we help, for us as a church, and, and for us, we shouldn't look to people to meet our needs. Maybe you've noticed this, people always disappoint you. You ever notice that? Guess what? You always disappoint people too. We all do, because we're not God. But Christ is the one who does it. And we have to keep that in perspective of who Jesus is and who we are. And you know what? It is a great relief of a burden that sometimes we improperly place on ourselves that somehow we need to meet those needs or our church has to do that or do this, but to relieve ourselves of the burden to know Jesus is the one who needs to do that. And Jesus will do it. And it's for his glory. Because you know what's happening sometimes when, when we pull that out and we, we put all this extra burden on ourselves and somehow thinking that we're responsible, we're going to meet people's needs? It's like we're trying to steal Jesus' glory from him because we want it for ourselves. But it's his church, it's his mission, and he does give his authority and power to his church to accomplish his mission. But then, it's not really us doing it. We're just conduits because he himself works through his church to accomplish his mission. We can't do it without him, but with him, I mean, it's one of the most glorious experiences of life. Amen. To minister in Jesus' name. So when you think about it, this passage in Luke chapter 9 and the first apostolic mission, the 12 really had nothing from the beginning. They had no significant resources in both their experiences, right? We learned that in the tour um, that they went on and in the feeding of the 5,000. They've been resourced by God the Father and the Lord Jesus himself all along. And the Apostle Paul, in his writings, provides a great encouragement, uh, even on the little that we do have. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, you know this verse well, it says, And what do you have that you didn't receive? But if you did receive it, Why do you boast as if you had not received it? Hmm. Well, we as humans and uh, fallen humans condition that we're in, and especially Americans, I would say, we think we are so resourceful. We think we're so effective. We think we're so smart. No wonder we often have a reputation of being arrogant. But we have to learn that the church has always depended upon the Lord for resources and for ministry and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He supplies them both. And these two stories illustrate these much larger ministry truths for us. I mean, they really did the supply. I mean, God really did the supplying for his his apostles, right? And for us, he provides money, opportunities, people to do it, people to listen, materials, our personal needs, the list goes on. He really does work the success of the gospel. It's not We don't open anybody's heart. You ever opened anybody's heart to receive the gospel? No. Only God does that. 
He's the one who opens hearts. He's the one who gives understanding. He's the one who shows people that Jesus is beautiful when just a few minutes before, they didn't think he was that great at all. He's the one who reveals the needs of our souls. He's the one who brings about salvation through grace, by grace, through faith, and then even meeting all of our spiritual and material needs as God's people. We, the church, are his beloved means of bringing that gospel to the world. So does God call us to ministry that requires more resources than we have? So I hope the answer is a little bit easier now. Maybe it's more complicated. Yes, he does. Always, really, because all true ministry comes from him. It's all done by him. So we still wonder, though, at times, like, why does Jesus challenge his church with such responsibilities that are so far beyond our resourcefulness and our resources? It's so that we can learn the difference between a resource-based and a faith-based approach to ministry, between a fleshly and a spiritual one, between a worldly one and a spiritual one. And I think we, especially in our culture, really need this kind of a lesson because we very naturally just think we're very capable people because God's made us all so successful in life. And we're, we're so naturally, we, we think we're wise. We've got the best ideas. And we so naturally, and this is the thing I think is the scariest, is that we can so naturally think that what we think is a spiritual thought. But it might not be. And that's why I think so often we pray help me prayers. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God to help you, of course. But it's like, God, I've got this, but I just need a little assist over here. Because we want to lead it. We think we can. And we just need him to just sort of be there to help. And so we pray, help me, help this person, help this. But what we really should be praying is, Lord, would you do this? Would you do this? If it would add to your glory, would you accomplish this? You see. And so, why does Jesus challenge his church with responsibilities beyond its resourcefulness? It's to humble us and to cause us to lift our eyes up to heaven. To teach us about true faith, about being a disciple of his, to teach us about the all-sufficiency of himself is to give us a burgeoning hope in the gospel and the kingdom for even right now. You see, if we look only at our resources, if we just look down and count the loaves and fish on hand, we're never going to exceed their possibility. Oh, we might do something, but comparatively very little. But if we look up to the Lord Jesus and his calling along with resources, our few loaves and fish, then he'll use our resources beyond all expectations and explanations even. So we at Calvary Church have experienced this so many times over the years in so many ways, and we have done so personally as well. So let's keep on in this kind of faith for 2022 and the years to come, and remember that our mission mandate does flow out of the apostles because we're part of the apostolic church of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives authority and power to his church to do his mission, and he himself is the one who works through his church to accomplish it. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we adore you this morning, and we give you glory as the Lord of your church. We are not lords of it. We give you glory as Lord of your mission. We are not its architects. 
And we confess that we are dependent upon you for all resources and for all effectiveness. And we want you to supply and we want you to make effective your glorious gospel so that we can see your kingdom advance and we can be a part of it and we can enjoy it and we can enjoy your glory. And we pray that you would do these things, that you would do more than help us, but that you, for your own glory and your own purposes at Calvary Church, that you would do things here to us and through us that are beyond all of our expectations and all of our explanations. And we pray these things for your sake, Jesus. Amen.